Welcome to You Might Hate This Book, where each episode one of us will recommend a book to the other. A book that we love that we suspect our co-host might hate. Well, hate is a strong word. How about falls outside of their traditional scope of interest. Fine, that's fair. A book they would never have chosen to read otherwise. We'll read the assigned book, then come back together to discuss. Did you love it? Or did you hate it? So you agree we might hate it. (sighs) Yeah, you might hate it. I'm Stephanie. And I'm Hannah. And you might hate this book. Maybe later on in our podcasting careers, people are only a week behind us, but right now they're three weeks behind. No, I think that's pretty normal, though. Yeah, probably. Yeah. We just had Thanksgiving. That was nice. Yes. I just got back from Texas mm-hmm. visiting my family. Got back from Nashville. And Kyle gave me my early Christmas present. Oh, really? What is it? He got me a Taylor Swift ticket to the Eras <gasps> Tour, which I know you don't care about, but it's but like I the best. <laughs> I care so like, much. People... People really care about this. Yes. So I know that much. Yes. Um, tickets sold out before the, sh- the sale even started. Tickets sold out in the pre-sale and millions of people took to Twitter to say how unhappy they were. Oh, wow. And so now there's a small number of tickets on the secondary market and they are very pricey. And oh, wow. Kyle got me one of those. That is so sweet. If I and... wasn't already married to him, I'd marry him again. <laughs> when, when is the concert? Uh, May 5th. Okay, all right. Yeah, so now I just, you know. Gotta wait. Gotta wait. <laughs> just takes me back to fourth grade when my best friend Aaron got a ticket to the Backstreet Boys Millennium Tour and no called me on know. Christmas Day and was like, Hannah, will you go with me? I was like, <laughs> yes, of course. It was my first concert. I loved it. I've never been to a stadium tour. I've only been to music festivals, which right. have a very different vibe. That's true. And I am in a nosebleed seat. Um, oh, you will still have so much fun. Oh, I know. Yeah. I am not worried about it. I yeah. just want to be in the room. I don't care. That's like, awesome. I'll sit in the bathroom. Can I... <laughs> Yeah, I just want to be in the room. But I've never been to this environment of, like, a stadium tour, lights and people flying through the air. I'm excited And smoke screens. You're going to be such a fangirl. Oh, my gosh. I'm just going to cry the whole time. Which, speaking of fangirl. Oh, no, what? That's what's going to happen today on the podcast. (laughs) This is the book. That when I said to you, hey, let's do a podcast. You uh, wanted to talk about this This book. is the one. Like, we had to do some other ones to get to it. I couldn't just jump out the gate with this. But here it is. I'm, okay. This is a book that begs to be talked about. It does. So this week's book is Kafka on the Shore by Haruki Murakami um, that I made Stephanie read. And I'm just going to say up top, I love it. It's one of my favorite books. I am a Murakami fangirl. But I'll give a brief synopsis. And I think this is a theme for me. The books I pick are hard to give synopses of. Yeah, I don't know what you're going to say now <laughs> well, as far so as the synopsis. I was diving down many rabbit holes preparing for this, and I found an interview that Murakami gives, and he gives a synopsis of this book. Well, that's probably a good place to so turn. That's where we're going to start. Wrote it, so. um, he begins his summary, though, by stating it's almost impossible to explain. Yeah. <laughs> this is Murakami's uh, synopsis. There are two stories that run parallel. My protagonist is a 15-year-old boy. His name, his first name, is Kafka. In the other storyline, the protagonist is a 60-year-old man. He's illiterate. He cannot write or read. He's kind of a simpleton, but he can talk to cats. The boy, Kafka, was cursed by his father, an Oedipal kind of curse. You will kill me, your father, and make love with your mother. He escapes from his father to escape from his curse, and he goes to a faraway place, but he experiences... A very strange world, very unrealistic, dreamlike things. So that um, that's Kafka on the shore in Murakami's own words in a, an interview that he gave to the Paris Review, which I'm going to mention multiple times in this podcast. All right. So I want you to predict. I want to hear I, what you think I will think. I don't know. Like, I, I truly <clears throat> don't know. This Like, the last one, I was like, yeah, she's definitely going to hate it. This one... I picked solely because I love it so much and I want to talk about it with somebody. And honestly, whether you love or hate it, like we get to talk about it and I'm excited. Yeah. Um, I was thinking about our track record. We started with like two and a half stars, then one, then one, then two. So I'm hoping we kind of go on this trajectory maybe. (laughs) And I was going to ask you, when do we break the podcast? Like how many stars do you think it is that we break the, the conceit of the podcast? 
Um, is it four? Is it f- does it have to be five? I mean, how many times in a row does it have to happen? I think if oh, I didn't think about. That. I mean, I think if I love one book or you love one book, that doesn't break the podcast. Okay. If every single week we love the books, we've broken the podcast. Oh, okay. I was talking to someone about this today, someone who listened to our podcast, right? Um, and he was like. I think it's really interesting that you're disagreeing. I also am really excited for the day that you agree on something and I get to like see what that is, that what it is that you oh, agree cool. on. Yeah. And it can't be every time, but sure. also the disagreement probably can't be every time either. And so that's what's going to be interesting about this is what is the thing that you're going to like finally agree on? And sure. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. I didn't think about how many times I was thinking it at least has to be four stars. Yeah. I didn't know if we wanted to say five, but, like, three to me is just, like, you're okay with it. I think it's got to be five stars. It's got to be, I love it just as much as you do, and if it happens, you know, every once in a while, I don't think we've broken anything. Okay. Well, we'll revisit the brokenness of our our conceit We'll decide our own demise a different time. Yeah, I really don't know what you're going to think of this. I mean... I feel like it's a polarizing book. Either I mean, just from that synopsis, it's it's weird. Mm-hmm. So either it's going to be like one or two or four or five. I don't think it's a three-star book. No, you cannot feel three stars about this book. Yeah, okay. That's all the prediction I've got. Okay. Hit me. I have <laughs> thought about this all day, and I... I'm so annoyed because I either want to give it five stars or one star. And <laughs> and, and the balance between those things is three, but that is not accurate. You cannot give it three stars. It has to be either five or this one. This is so interesting. And I can't, I, I'm on it, like I'm leaning towards one. Okay. But like, you were so close with this one. Oh, okay. That's I, good to know. I read it in the car on the way to, to Thanksgiving and I turned to Kyle like halfway through or maybe earlier than that. I was probably 30% through. And I said, I might love this book. <laughs> and I kept reading it. And then 50% of the way through, I was like, okay, I'm so intrigued. We have all these questions. We have all mm-hmm. this stuff that's yes. been brought up. Like, it is, we've laid out all the many puzzle pieces. Yes. Now we're 50% through. We're going to start putting them together. And I was <laughs> so excited. Then 75% of the way through, I was like, We've just added more puzzle pieces, and we have not connected anything. There are there are no. It is Winston yeah. doing a puzzle. We've just put an almond in it. Winston is about to do some puzzling. Um, and then I was like, oh man, is this is this why I'm gonna hate it? And ninety percent of the way through, I turned to Kyle and I said. I think I'm going to hate this freaking book. I don't think it's going to I don't think it's going to do what it should do. And I had like 10 pages left and I was like it's not going to happen. It's no. it's not going to Okay, it's just it's over now. It's over. The book ended. Yes. Reading Murakami is like watching David Lynch, which I also would not do. <laughs> <laughs> you don't you don't watch for the answers. <laughs> if it had answered anything if it had put a single one of the pieces together mm-hmm. i might have given it a five i was intrigued the whole way i didn't okay. like you often ask like if if you were just reading this when would you have stopped never okay. i i wanted the answers i would have kept going that's right. how i went till the last bitter page <laughs> because i was not gonna quit yeah i wasn't like begrudgingly reading it either i was interested right but also, I hate I hate it. I don't... Yeah, that, that's fair. Gosh, this book. I, I have things to say about that, but I want you to kind of hit your, your points. Well, I mean, we're supposed to start with me hating it, I guess, so... I, I can't resist, though. Okay, so I do have... I went down such rabbit holes for this. I read so many interviews that Murakami has given. I also read several. Did I was you, trying to figure out what the heck was going on. Did you read on. the one on his website about Kafka? I don't think so. Okay. So this just, I just have to read this before we move on because it pertains directly to what you were saying about the unanswered questions of this book. And I think this is important if anybody is going to dive into Murakami. This is just something you need to know Yeah. about him as an author. Just be ready. Yeah. So Murakami on an interview that is on his website, he's asked about like the secrets of this book and they're 
there's actually there was a website put out in Japanese where readers were allowed to ask him questions. I read about that fact. Yes, it's never been translated into English, so we do not get those answers. But like, there were eight thousand questions submitted to him, and that he checks out. He answered twelve hundred of them, and apparently had a, a decent time doing it. He says, "What I concluded from this exchange was that the key to understanding the novel lies in reading it multiple times." This may sound self-serving, but it's true. I know people are busy, and it depends too on whether you feel like doing it. But if you have the time, I suggest reading the novel more than once.、Uh, and then he goes on to say that Kafka on the Shore contains several riddles, but there aren't any solutions provided. Instead, several of these riddles combine, and through their interaction, the possibility of a solution takes shape. The form this solution takes will be different for each reader. To put it another way. The riddles function as part of the solution. It's hard to explain. Okay. <laughs> First of all, I read that exact quote. Okay. Whatever. You, so you did read this one. Yeah.、Okay. Um, that to me sounds like there's not an. I'm just BSing you. Like that's what that sounds like to me is blowing smoke. I mean, I think you can take it that way, and I think I can't help but relate his writing to David Lynch's movies and television shows because. I also am a big Twin Peaks fan, and people have accused him of that too. Like you're just you're just messing with us now. You're、yeah. just throwing things in. But the more I have read about Murakami's writing process, like I definitely think David Lynch does that with、yeah. his movies <laughs> for sure. But I don't think he does.、Uh, Mur- I don't think Murakami does in his writing. I think he. The more I read about his writing process, he's just very mystical. <laughs> I don't know how else to put it, and. He's definitely like in touch with that whole like Greek concept of the muses. Yeah, is how we would put it in Western ideas. I really don't think that's what he's trying to do, but we can talk about that later. Yeah,、um, I wrote down the like the train of thought, the like station one, and then you get to this, and then you get、yes. to this, and then you get to this. Okay. okay, so this book is like a dream. Oh, absolutely. In that. It seems very profound in the moment, and everything makes so much sense. And then you wake up, and you're like, "No, I think that, that is so accurate." Like、yes. it, it when you're asleep, you're like, "Yeah, it all is so clear." That, and like that moment between waking and like sleep, where you're like, "Oh yeah, I'm gonna go put the cat in." You know, the yeah, box and or like when you're asleep, the cabbage, when you're trying to explain a dream to someone, you're like, "It was my house," but like it wasn't my house. Yeah, and like in your dream, fine, it wasn't your house. But if you're telling someone, it's like, "Well, don't imagine it in the layout of my house that you know, because it wasn't my house." Right. The one time I tried to keep a dream journal, I wrote and looked at it later. I rode through the things that were not trees. <laughs> <laughs> to this day, I don't know what that means, and I wrote it. <laughs> yeah, and so it was very much. Like, oh, this is deep. This is meaningful. Actually, I think my brain is just misfiring nonsense. It doesn't mean anything. And when you wake up, none of it connects. None of it has like a secret, profound message. It's just nonsense. That was this book. Did you feel betrayed by the ending? Yes. And because、uh, it was a page turner, like I said, I never wanted、mm-hmm. to quit. Yes. I was invested. I was all the way there. And like. I think it'll sound like I don't like an ambiguous ending. I no, lo- that's that's not what this is though. Yeah, yeah we should clarify. I I'm fine with an ambiguous ending. I、mm-hmm. love an ambiguous ending, especially、um, Birdman. Does he die or go fly away? Like yeah, kind of. Okay. And one of his first scenes, he's levitating, which like people obviously cannot do. Right. And so there's some like magical realism、yeah. in it, in that like things that cannot happen in the real world. Are sprinkled into it, and you don't really get an explanation. But then at the end, the big question is: Did he really fly away? Because、mm-hmm. Emma Stone's character looks out the window and looks up and has this like look of wonder,、right. and you you ha- you don't know what she's looking at. Did he really fly away, or did he not? And you get to have possibly heated discussions with your friends about, you or know, like the end of Inception: Is he dreaming? Yeah, is he not? Yeah, yeah, is the top gonna? I wrote that one down too.、Mm-hmm. Um, lock, stock, and two smoking barrels. Like I've not seen that. Um, in Bruges, does he really die?、Uh, and like, that's fun to have. I think it, you know, a die-hard conversation where you're like, "No, best friend, this is what happened," and I love that. But some of the questions are answered. There's a structure. There's、right. a plot, and then there's just like a question mark at the end. This was not that. It is not a problem of ambiguous ending. It's、mm-hmm. a problem. It's a problem of ambiguous beginning, middle. 
maybe end all through. I do I do agree it is ambiguous, but I do also think it has a structure. It it does have a structure. Yeah. It's not it did it did have a plot. I I'm, right. I'm tempted to say it didn't have a plot, but it did. It did. Yeah, so sometimes it felt like it was just a jumble of information thrown at a wall. Like it felt <laughs> like spaghetti yeah. thrown at a wall and just seeing what sticks. I started to feel more this way when I was reading one star reviews to find sure. for this. Because some people, like, put into words, I was like, that's what I was feeling. Like, he'll go on these long tirades of explaining something meaningful and profound and whatever. And it felt like it was trying really hard to to be meaningful. This one does that a little bit. Like, when they're talking about, you know, is this a metaphor? Like, two characters literally are talking about a thing happening in real life and saying, is this a metaphor or is this real? He, there are... Two words that I wanted a word count for how many times does he use this word in this novel. The first one was metaphor. Mm -hmm. The second was penis. (laughs) (laughs) And I tried to Google those things and I did not get sufficient answers. When I get a Kindle, we could do that. (laughs) Yes, because he's like, everything is a metaphor. Life is a metaphor. This is a metaphor. It's a metaphor. Writer, you don't get to say this is a metaphor. You're not supposed to have to say that. That's the point of a metaphor. And my understanding of the use of metaphors is to help you understand something better. Well, he definitely doesn't do that. You don't understand anything better through his quote-unquote metaphors. So are you even using that word correctly? Because a metaphor is supposed to help you understand through a symbol that is common enough. And I wonder, because you bring up, like, are you using that word? I do not think it means. <laughs> think it means. Um, since his novels are translations from the Japanese. Okay, yeah. I don't think that excuses entirely what you're saying. Yeah. But I wonder how many things are lost in translation. Because, like, I know, like, in Japanese, there are different forms of first-person pronouns. Mm-hmm. And that he will deliberately, like, switch them up in some of his works, which we, we don't care about that. We only have one. Yeah. So that's lost in translation. And so I just wonder... Yeah, was metaphor the best word? Right, or but there I, were different I words. really hated that. I was like, <clears throat> first of all, you're not talking about a metaphor. Also, you cannot say to your reader, this is a metaphor. Who says in real life to the person they're discussing something with, this right now is a metaphor, but then also doesn't explain why on earth it could possibly be a metaphor. I was like, bro, calm down. And the physical word metaphor is in it so much Mm -hmm. that I tried to Google how often is this word in this book. So yeah, I still have a thousand questions. I wrote a bunch of them down. I I don't know what the point in that necessarily is because I'm not going to get answers. Well, I think he wants, from all of the interviews I've read that he's done, I think he wants people to ask those questions and come up with the answers for themselves. I think he deliberately doesn't put the answers in. Well, I mean, you said you wanted someone to discuss this book with. And there's a lot to talk about. Does Kafka kill his father or does Nakata or neither? Okay. So, yeah, I guess we should name these characters because that synopsis I read. Um, But, yeah, so you've got the two main characters, Kafka, who's 15, with the whole Oedipal prophecy he's trying to escape, and then Nakata, who is the old 60-year-old man who is illiterate but can talk to cats. So at one point, the cats lead him to this man who is dressed as Johnny Walker, Super weird scene. And he... Super violent. Violence toward cats. Yes. If you cannot handle graphic (sighs) violence towards animals, you will have to skip that scene. And it almost comes out of nowhere. Yeah. To me, when I read it. I am... I don't know. I'm a friend of fiction, and I can normally read something, and I started to feel queasy. Yes. Like, it's even ambiguous whether or not he is Kafka's dad, this, like, Johnny Walker person. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, so you have to decide that first, and then he's killing all these cats, and Nakata finds their body parts in his fridge, and he basically tells Nakata, you either have to kill me, or I'm going to keep killing cats, and so Nakata kills him. And it's I found a, a review in The Guardian by David Mitchell, and it's called, Kill Me or the Cat Gets It. <laughs> um, so there's a question in this book of, like, if something that happens in dreams can actually also happen in real life. Yeah. Which is a thing he explores in multiple books. And so there's this question of did Kafka through Nakata, who they have this kind of psychic link, kill his father? 
Yeah, because... If you accept that the Johnny Walker character is his father. Right. So Kafka is predicted that he's going to kill his father. Right. He has this, like, blackout, essentially, where he has a loss of memory and doesn't remember anything, but he's covered in blood. Yes. And I will tell you that I listened to the audiobook, and it's... Oh! Nakata. Oh, really? Oh, so I, I've been thank saying you. it like that. Um, yeah, I'm not... I don't know Japanese. Yeah. So Nakata remembers the stabbing. He remembers killing this Johnny Walker character, but when he goes to report himself, I've killed this character, yes. he has no blood. So Kafka has no memory but blood, and Nakata has memory but no blood, and then it's reported Kafka's father in real life is dead. So right. after Nakata kills Johnny Walker. If any of that made any sense to you, <laughs> if you haven't read this book, it, no. it doesn't make sense to me either. Me and I personally, read my reading is, yes, he killed his father. Who, though? Kafka. Okay. That's my answer today. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. On another reading, I might have a different answer. But to me, those pieces just seem to link yeah. up. Like, I know his whole thing, almost all of his books, save one that he has published, all have this dreamlike quality that you're describing. And I think just because what we see, I think he's pushing us to to not just accept what we see as reality, but that there is a reality beyond what we see. And I think that's what this scene gets to for me is, yes, we see through the narration Nakata killing Johnny Walker slash Kafka's father. But what in the bigger dream reality happened is that Kafka did. And that's why he gives us these clues of the blood, no blood, the blackout. Is Miss Saeki really his mother? I don't know about that one. That's... I want to... It's an important question. It is. Because he has sex with her. He d- her 15-year-old self. Also her 50-year-old self. Yeah, that's yeah, true. I blocked that out. Um, <laughs> he has sex with a 15-year-old yep. ghost and a 50-year-old real woman who may or may not be his mother. Yeah. I... I don't know about Japan, but round here, <laughs> the age of consent is not 15. And if you are right. a 50-year-old woman, it doesn't matter if the 15-year-old boy who's just like, sex. Yeah. Um, and he doesn't consent. He says he was paralyzed and could not move and could not tell her no. And then they yeah. have sex, which I'm going to call rape. It's problematic for sure. Oh, there's more. Yeah. <laughs> and that gets to the question, like, did it actually happen? Or was it a dream? The 15-year-old girl one is dreamlike in that she was, like, a ghost. But the one with Miss Saeki mm-hmm. in the present day, he no one was asleep. It is not presented as a dream. It is presented and uh, Oshima asks. Oh, right. You guys are sleeping together, right? We should back up and name these characters, I guess, Oh, my too. gosh. So <laughs> It's not going to make any more sense when we do. Kafka runs away to escape this prophecy. He runs away to Shikoku? And he goes to this very specialized library where Miss Seiki lives and runs it. And Oshima is, uh, like, the only employee at Mm -hmm. this library. And they basically employ Kafka, this runway 15-year-old, and he lives there. And they kind of take care of him on his journey. Um, And, yeah, so there's this question of is Miss Seiki his mother or not? Because his mother took his older sister and left when he was, like, what, four? And he believes that Miss Seiki is his mother. Yes. When he sleeps with her. Which I think is the more... Whether she is or not, if he believes that. Yeah, he he believed that she was yeah. and was like, okay. And by the way, your question of is she his mother, the character in the book asks. And the answer he gets is, you already know. I know. <laughs> I know that. I read this book. <laughs> I also thought that maybe Kafka was her long-deceased lover. Yes, that is so strongly That, that is yes. strongly hinted at. And so I was like, I don't know if he's like a parallel timeline of her deceased lover. I don't know. Which I liked better because then... That's the way I read it. Because then, yeah. So Maseki had this, this young lover before she was married uh, and had presumably Kafka and his sister. Mm-hmm. And... He, how did he die? I don't remember that. Uh, was killed in some kind of revolution oh. at the college. Oh, right, the protests. So, yeah. yeah, there were lots of university protests in Japan around that time. I don't know a lot of that history, but they're referenced <laughs> in other Murakami books. So, yes, she lost him. And so it is kind of hinted at that Kafka could also be, like, the soul of that that man kind of reincarnated. Yeah. Yeah. And because of his name, Kafka, which... 
she wrote a song called Kafka on the Shore based on a painting called Kafka on the Shore, which is now a book called <laughs> Kafka on the Shore. Yes, yes. <laughs> so what was the question? <laughs> I don't rip my head hurts. <laughs> is uh, Sakura really his sister? That to me just seemed kind of secondary. Yeah, he meets this girl. They have they have some... She gives him a hand job. Yeah, I was trying to remember exactly what happened. I knew it wasn't like... And then says, I wish... I was really your sister. Yeah. You should not do those two things within five minutes of no. one another. You get to pick one, hand job or being related. <laughs> yeah. And then he, like, has a dream about her later. And so that also brings up this question, is what happens in dreams really reality? Like, does he fulfill the Oedipal prophecy through that dream, even though it wasn't reality? Yeah. So those are all questions where you get to talk about something. Um, and you get to have an opinion, and it's interpretive. Why do fish fall from the sky, Hannah? Oh, because it's fun. That's not an answer. Yes, you read for fun. Uh, Nakata makes them fall. Okay. Yeah. What does What does that mean? That's didn't it? If my memory serves me correctly, didn't it slow down something? They were trying to get somewhere. I don't remember. It's been over a year since no, I read this. No, it was just. Fish fall from the sky, and then later, leeches fall from the sky. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Why can he talk to cats? Because of the aliens. Is that what happened to the kids? <laughs> Is yeah. that what happened to the kids during World War II? That's what I assumed. Um, well, the, I didn't think aliens for a second. So. Because all of those... So... You can't... Wow. Just keep, just, just keep explaining. <laughs> You're going to explain until one day you just die, because this book has... That's the, why I love this so much, because, okay, the... The parallel stories of Kafka and Nakata. Nakata starts with these very X-Files-y, like, U.S. Army reports of this incident called the Rice Bowl Incident that happened Rice to these... Bowl, the incident at Rice Bowl Hill. There you go. Thank you. <laughs> um, where these school kids went out with their teacher to this hill in the countryside to, like, hunt mushrooms, and then they all, like, passed out at the same time. They saw yes. a bright light in the sky. To me, that was UFOs. Maybe yeah. I've watched too much X-Files. I don't know. I mean, there's not a better explanation. I'm going with that. Okay. Uh, and so they all pass out, but they all wake up except Nakata. Mm -hmm. He stays in a coma for quite a while, and when he does wake up, he has lost all memory. And I mean, like, he d he forgets how to read. And so that's why he is a simpleton. But even though he cannot read, he can talk to cats. So yeah. because of the aliens. Okay. And that's why this book gripped me. I was like, I want to know what happens to the kids. That oh, will obviously... Yes obviously be something that we go back to and deal with. Nope. No. No. Nope. Why can he talk to cats? That will obviously be something that we go back to and deal with. Nope. How are Kafka and Nakata connected? Why are they connected? Why are there fish? Why are there leeches? Why is Johnny Walker? Why is there Colonel Sanders? Oh, I love Colonel Sanders. <laughs> He's <sighs> another... Spirit, I'm going to call him. That, sure. That manifests himself to Nakata and his, um, he makes a, a friend. There, there's a yeah. sort of like buddy comedy going on between Nakata and this truck driver yeah. that he meets. Um, Hoshino. And yeah, Colonel Sanders is a spirit that manifests himself to them. And it's like, there are moments where Murakami is so funny because Hoshino literally asks the spirit, like, why Colonel Sanders? And he's like... Uh, I thought about a mouse, but Disney's real particular about their rights. I I did really <laughs> like yeah. that. <laughs> it's just like, oh. And you know KFC is very big in Japan. No. <laughs> oh, oh, yes. It is a big deal. Like, there have been, like, little animes made of Colonel Sanders with the hard eyes. And the, oh, my goodness. Like, they go there. I think you have to have reservations on, like, holidays <laughs> to get into KFC. <laughs> It's a big deal. And it's like the trashiest place in the world here. Yeah, no, but it's a big deal in Japan. So That doesn't explain why Colonel Sanders shows up as a ghost who uh, leads you to a mythical rock. So, but to be, yes. So, he's not the ghost of Colonel Sanders. He is a spirit and he has manifested himself as something that is recognizable and... Yeah, you're clarifying, yeah. but I don't even know why. <laughs> so, okay, uh, this book is so interesting to me because it's not, you're not going to get answers. You're only going to have questions and riddles. And that's very fun to me. I enjoy that. 
you're not going to get the surface level narrative answers of why did this happen, what happens next, but you do kind of get to some deeper truths, I think, about just like human nature. And like the more I think about it, the more I'm like, oh, this is interesting. Like, because really, I think what I would call this book is a buildings roman. It's a it's a coming of age story. It is Kafka's coming of age story, okay. um, and accepting growing up and what the world is. And I'm I'm honestly not very interested in the whole Oedipal myth like angle. And that is not even what Murakami like set out to write. That just kind of, <laughs> in his own words, happened. I respect and see what you're saying. To me, it's it just, not for everyone. It just feels like lazy writing. Writing is so hard, and I've written and plotted and written three novels, and it is really challenging to fill all the plot holes and not have someone just be like, "Well, what about this?" Oh, okay. And you have to think for weeks, maybe months, about how to fill it. Well, if you can just be like, it's a metaphor, really? Like, to me, a good book has believable characters with believable motivations. If I wrote a book and someone was like, I don't understand why someone would do something that irrational Mm -hmm. without even thinking first, they would be like, that's not a good book. You know, not a believable character with not believable motivations. There needs to be a, a believable conflict that has to be overcome. And there are stages of overcoming that conflict. There needs to be a plot without gratuitous holes. Mm-hmm. He just said, bump that. Just didn't. He just did not. Mm-hmm. He said no to all of that. To me, it makes me angry, first of all, that, like, apparently he is not held to this standard no. that everyone else is held to. I understand he's a famous writer. And that, to me, makes a satisfying story. Like, I want the characters to be at least some... That that doesn't say, like, there's no room for imagination. There's no room for ambiguity. And there's no room for magic. But I just feel like it's a cheat. Like, in a magical book, if someone was like, wait, well, how did they get from here to there? I thought they were here. And the author was just like, uh, well, it's magic. You'd be like, okay. He just wrote a nonsense and said, well, it's a metaphor and it's meaningful, but I won't tell you why. You have to think of it on your own. Mm-hmm. You Do you see what I'm saying? I see what you're saying. And it, I will say, like, he's not for everyone. I mean, like we said at the top, it's pretty polarizing. Yeah, that's what I mean. It's like, I can't give it three stars. It's either five or one. Right. So I think now would be a good time to mention genre. Okay. Since you mentioned magic... The genre of this book is magical realism, which I don't think you're into. I don't think I am either. Because I picked a book for our book club that also had magical realism. I didn't like it. It was Bone Clocks by David Mitchell. Did you even finish it? No. I was going to say, some of our book club did not, so I couldn't I would love to find one that I do like. I have not read very many of them. There's probably one out there that I do like. Right. But I can name of any genre... You know, my a book that I really do love in that genre, not this one. Right, right. And that's kind of like me with romance. Like, yeah, I understand what the genre is doing, but it's not for me. So magical realism, though, I feel like is a bit harder to understand maybe than romance. And it's the definitions of it are very and are very disparate. Right. Um, so I'm going to do my best, <laughs> much like with the rest of this book, um, to define it. So I'm going to put my English teacher hat on for a minute. But Teach me. Stop me if... I'm getting in the weeds. Okay. Um, so it it's a pretty new genre. It came about in the 20th century, uh, and it blends magical and mundane. It mixes the two in a style that is very realistic, um, because the whole point is kind of not to call attention to the magic, but to make it seem like it is part of our reality. So that's what makes it different than fantasy. Fantasy is, like, set in a whole other world. Yeah. This is our world where magic is happening alongside of mundane things. And I was so surprised. The Wikipedia page for magical realism was very detailed and and helpful, which it not isn't always, because there's a lot of different facets to magical realism. Um, but one of the things uh, that was that was on the Wikipedia page that is authorial reticence. I don't know what that means. Which is like, okay, so I'm going to quote from the Wikipedia page, a deliberate withholding of information and explanations about uh, 
the disconcerting fictitious world. Like they're deliberately holding back some of the explanations because to explain the magic happening in the real life would undermine the Would like genre. lose its magic. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And that's another thing about magical realism is a heightened sense of mystery. And I don't mean like a whodunit mystery, but like a capital M. Yeah. How does life work and how are things interconnected? So it gives you these pieces of a puzzle. Um, you mentioned like jigsaw puzzle yes. at the top of the show, which I think is an apt comparison. And I think he, it is a jigsaw puzzle and he doesn't give you the lid to the box. <laughs> so you don't know what the thing looks like. So it's like usually in like a mystery, you have a jigsaw puzzle, but you know the logic that you're supposed to use to put it together. Yeah. With magical realism or with Murakami specifically, not only do you have to figure out how the pieces fit, you also have to have to figure out the logic that it follows to fit them together. You don't know what the bigger picture is supposed to look like. So it's like that one level up. That makes sense. Yes. Um, the the term magical realism first came about in 1925 with a German art critic. Okay. Uh, Franz Roh. Of course his name is Franz. Yeah, R-O-H. Um, but he was an art critic, and he was writing about surrealist art. So think like Salvador Dali's The Persistence of Memory with the Melting Clocks and Rene Magritte with the the guy with the bowler hat and the green apple in front of his face. Okay, so this term came about to describe those types of paintings. That's fair. (laughs) So, um, and then of course it took root in Latin American literature. Probably the quintessential novel that everyone knows of magical realism is Gabriel Garcia Marquez's 100 Years of Solitude, which I read on your recommendation. You did? Did you like it? I liked it well enough. Like, but you don't remember a lot of it? I mean, I remember that everyone has the same name. (laughs) Yeah, that That is tough to follow. Does it have a family tree in it somewhere where you can... Does it have, like, a genealogy? My copy of the book doesn't, but I'm sure if you Googled it, you could find one. (laughs) Because I remember thinking, I would like a spreadsheet. Can someone make a document? Right, you want the box lid, right? Uh, Yes, okay. (laughs) (laughs) That might be a little too straightforward for magical realism. No, and that's totally fine. And, and, you know, and I would be remiss without mentioning the title of the book, Kafka, is an obvious reference to Franz Kafka. Yeah. uh, Because... Murakami took more of his inspiration from, like, European writers than Latin American writers. So Kafka wrote The Castle and the Trial, which um, Murakami has mentioned as influences. But then also, of course, Metamorphosis. Like, Gregor wakes up one morning and he's a large bug. Okay. That's the story. <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> yeah. um, but that book in particular, it really, you know, it puts together the realistic and the fantastical in an unsettling way to show these isolated characters dealing with the absurdity of their modern life. Yeah. Which I think you could also kind of say about Nakata and Kafka. Like, they're very isolated. There are things about their life that is obscure. I think Murakami's playing with the genre a little bit and adding a little bit of a surrealist bent because... Oh, surrealist literature. That gets real weird. <laughs> Even weirder. <laughs> Are you going to make me read one one day? I don't know. It's I, I prefer magical realism. Okay. It's more accessible. Like, surreal magical realism is still set in the real world. Yeah. Surrealism is like, let's explore dreams, but within the dream. And okay. within the psychology of it now. It's not as... I liked Inception as a movie, but I'm not sure I would like what you're yeah, describing in a book. It's not as accessible. Which is why I like Murakami. I think his writing's accessible. But it's also very postmodern. Um, like, we talked about modernism with Weinsberg. Yeah. And how it, the aesthetic there is, like, let's describe things in very realistic, very stark, um, you know, diction. But then postmodernism, like any movement that comes after, is like, forget that! <laughs> it's like, truth? What is truth? Not only do we not need to know what it is, There's we're not, not one. sure there is one. <laughs> right. It's got an irreverence for truth and a throwing away of tradition. Yeah. Um, which is where Murakami's quote about, like, the riddle is the answer. You get to decide the meaning for yourself. I'm skeptical that it has a me. I think he just did acid and wrote a book and was like, it has meaning, but you gotta figure it out well, on your own. I... You start to see patterns within his writing, and I think yeah. he is deliberate. And I think a lot of it is, and what appeals to me, is he is not interested in questions that are solely of this reality. Like, he is always trying to explore the liminal spaces between, like, dreaming and waking, the possibility of other realities. And this is going to sound like real new agey and off the wall for me, but the forest that Kafka goes to in the end, like that to me epitomizes the world he is trying to evoke with his writing and explore. And there are no answers in that world. Like, just like you don't get an answer for what your dreams mean 
he he's just serving it up to you. And see, like, that doesn't bother me. I'm super new agey. I'm the woo-woo one <laughs> yeah, out are. of us. Like, I'm the one who would be, like, that does not turn me off of it. It was just... I think, it, and this is just a matter of taste. Like, I think we are satisfied by very different things within a narrative and within a book. <laughs> that must be true. Like, I don't care about answers, which is becoming very clear to me now that I'm talking to you. Like, yeah. what makes a good book to me is something that is rereadable and something that I'm going to just keep thinking about and keep spinning my wheels about, which if you have all the answers, like, you're not, you're just going to read it and forget it. And I agree with that. I agree with that. Does it have to be this many questions and this few answers? I just, I wish yeah. it had been somewhere between sure. perfectly tied sure. up in a neat little bow and complete randomness. Like, yeah. there's there's got to be a middle ground in there of good discussion and read it again and see if you find something new. I love a book or a movie where it's like, it's best if you watch it three times, like, and get more stuff. I like stuff like that. This was just like extra for me. And there was gratuitous torture of cats. There was incest on the page. There was rape on the page. And there was a 15 year old's penis every third page. And not really that much. All of that for me, was a lot to not even satisfy me in the end. That's fair. That's fair. Yeah. I'm sorry about the David Lynch references, but I can't help it. I always tell people, Twin Peaks is one of my favorite TV shows, and I always tell people, go ahead and watch it. Get to the third episode in the Red Room. If that's too much, please stop now. Like, Yeah, you're not going to like continue. this. And I think that Murakami's writing is kind of like that. Yeah. Um. But yeah, I don't. I don't know that it... That I should try to convince you to. Yeah, like it. I mean, I think, I think there's an understanding. Like this is either for you or not. Like I, th- I think you understand the reasons why I don't like yeah. it and respect. Like that is a reasonable thing to dislike. Yeah. And so unless I just change my mind about things that I value in a story or things that I think should happen or not happen, right. we're not gonna right change each other's minds. And like I totally see what you're saying about I don't need this and so I like it. I just don't feel that way. Right, and I think that's fine um, and valid. I'm trying to articulate what it is I like about his writing so much because I do love it so much. And some other reviewers have done it better than I do. It's just to me, like, reading his writing, it's like somebody is putting my dreams on a page. It sounds cliche, but I don't know how else to say it. Like, oh, the things you like think when you're half asleep and and that idea of liminal space and like unreality is just so cool to me when I see a creator whether it's a writer or a a director I'm I'm very into that and I like that tension I like those things to explore Laura Laura Miller had a really good New York Times review of it when it first came out and when I say it first came out I mean the English translation which came a couple years after the the Japanese She writes at the beginning of her review, it is easier to be bewitched by Haruki Murakami's fiction than to figure out how he accomplishes the bewitchment. His novels, in America, the best known is probably The Wind-Up Bird Chronicle, lacks the usual devices of suspense. His narrators tend to be a bit passive, and the stakes in many of his shaggy dog plots remain obscure. Yet the undercurrent is nearly irresistible, and readers emerge several hundred pages later as if from a trance, convinced they've made contact with something significant, if not entirely sure what that something is. I feel like we both had that feeling, yes. and I loved it and reveled in it, and you were like, mm, yeah. not for me. Because that is how I felt. Yeah. I was like, this must be profound, and I looked up and I was like, wait, what? Mm-hmm. So it's like, you could have had me, except the tone turned way too pretentious at times and way sure. too preachy, and then the added problematic sex and problematic interpretation of women. Mm. I have a one-star review here. Mm -hmm. It's Mm -hmm. very long, but it is every female character in this book, and when it is spelled out to you, it's a little disturbing. Mm -hmm. And I haven't... I know what you're talking about. Yeah. He talks about women and sex as, like... It reminded me of, like, the way women are used in Greek myths, almost. Like, they are these, like wayfinders that like take the hapless Odysseus and like point you in the direction you need to go. Yeah. Well, and this is um, obviously like the Oedipal myth. Like right. this takes Greek references. Right. But that happens in a lot of his other books too. Like the female characters 
seem to know what's going on when the male is right. protagonist is just like, I don't, I don't yeah. know, what's up? But they're kind of just objectified and used for plot devices. And especially yeah. in this one, they're all sexual. Yes. Like, it's... It's all sexual plot devices, and I was not picking up on that as I was reading it, Mm -hmm. but then when it was laid out in front of me, I was like, yeah, Mm -hmm. ew. Which I think it kind of sexualizes the men, too, at times. I mean, like I said, Mm 15-year-old penis, Mm -hmm. but we learn more about Kafka, and we get more to him than just the parts of his body. And Right, and that is because it's from that first-person perspective. I will say, like, when he writes 1Q84 through Ayamame is the female. You get the same, like, you get to know her in the same way. Yeah. I think he gets better as he grows as a writer from the few books of his I have read and the interviews I've read. And I think he's aware of that critique. Cool. Which is good. Because <laughs> it is, yeah, problematic. There's a really cool um, New Yorker review. It's called Subconscious Tunnels by John Updike. And he talks about how, and he he's not as glowing in his review as Laura Miller is. <laughs> I, I'm more of the Laura Miller type. But one thing he talks about in his review that I did want to bring up is that there is a culture and a philosophy at play in this book that we are very unfamiliar with that I really am interested in and interested in exploring more. And I think kind of caused some of the cognitive dissonance that both you and I had when we read it. And that's the Shinto religion and mm-hmm. that um, world of kami. Does this mean anything to you? I've heard those words before, right. but I don't... That's okay. all. So, and I am not... I'm not an expert. I'm just, like, going off of what I read in um, in Updike's review and then some quick Google searches. But Shinto was the religion that was in Japan. Like, it's the... I guess the native Japanese. I should. There's been other things, you know, Confucianism, Buddhism that has come... Um, But that's their kind of native religion. And it has this idea of the kami, which is kind of hard to translate. Like, we kind of translate it as gods or spirits. But it, to them, is basically anything that feels worthy of reverence. Anything can be a spirit. Like, it doesn't even have to be a living thing. And I made the connection to one of my kids' favorite movies is Spirited Away Mm -hmm. by Miyazaki. And that has, when I read that, I was like, oh, that's... Like, that movie seems so strange to us, but it must not be in Japanese culture when you can think, like, and that's just part of your your cultural DNA, like, oh, everything can have a spirit. You know, yeah. if you give it worthy reverence, if you think this is worthy of reverence, it can have this kami, this spirit. And so just that whole idea kind of, it just woke me up like, oh, this is coming. I like reading books from other cultural perspectives, especially from more Eastern because we're so entrenched in our Western thinking. Yeah. Yeah, Updike writes, Japanese supernature imported into contemporary America with animated cartoons, video games, and Yu-Gi-Oh cards is luxuriant, lighthearted, and by the standards of monotheism, undisciplined. (laughs) So when we have Johnny Walker and Colonel Sanders showing up as these weird spirits and we have a mythical stone that gets moved and a big otherworldly slug that we're also not sure is also Kafka's dad. So there's this whole idea at, at play that I think is interesting and, and worth exploring that I really enjoyed Yeah, learning more about and I'm probably going to think more about um, and that Nakata kind of functions as the holy fool here. Mm-hmm. Like he, he is illiterate, but he also has this prescience about him and yeah. this this knowledge of this world and that you know, Updike mentions that the two heroes, Nakata and Kafka, they only interact in the realm of the kami. Like they yeah. never fully... You're waiting on I that. I kept waiting for them to meet. Right, they, they don't. don't. Because they meet in the realm of the kami. Also, Updike mentions the way he paints negative spaces. And I was going to ask you about this. Because when Kafka, towards the end of the book, goes into the woods, and it's like this weird village where, like, you know there are people there, but nobody interacts and everything's quiet. It's almost like some people have read it as this internal struggle of, like, when you're dealing with anxiety or depression or other things like that. Like, there's this tendency, like, you just want to turn your brain off. And just, like, give it up to the void. And Oshima tells him, like, don't go there. People that go there don't come back. But Kafka decides to come back and decides to, if you read it as that type of metaphor, feel the things. Like, he doesn't want to give himself up to the void. He wants to engage with the world, even when it's hard and icky and too bright, you know? So he leaves that village and goes back out of the woods into the real world. And I thought that was interesting. And he... 
Murakami, this comes up in other works of his, like these these nothing towns, these this void of like nothing happens here. And it's like sort of peaceful and kind of calming, but also scary. Yeah. I interpreted the village in the woods as like the the waiting place after death. Like I thought Oh, it, like a purgatory? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Um well because yes. we meet some people who we know have died. And so I thought he was like deciding whether or not to walk into the light or or like you could do it you to could come back. Read it that way too, I think. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean he does go there because he's sad essentially about Miss Sayeki mm-hmm. dying and she says I want you to go back even if it's sad. Listen, by this time in the book, I was just so confused. I'm not sure I was having deep, profound thoughts about stuff. I was just like, I just want something to make sense. Sure. Yeah, and he meets the two Japanese soldiers in yes. the woods, too, which I thought was also interesting because it's like you've seen war. You've seen, like, just turn, wanting to turn your brain off. And it was unclear to me, like, did they die or did they just go into the woods and not come out? But then, like, they didn't age. Yeah. So it's like when you turn your brain off and go into the void, you know, there's no growth there. Like, if he stays there, he's going to still be... Look at you finding metaphor and all of it. <laughs> no, I, well, and I've done a lot of reading. It's not just me. I'll reference it in the show notes. I like exploring liminal spaces. You sound it's, like your husband. Uh, well, <laughs> you know, we didn't talk about our history with the book. He's the one who recommended it to me. Oh, well. He read it, like, ages ago. And it's been on our shelf for many, many years. And he kept telling me, Hannah, you would love this. Hannah, you would love this. And finally, one day, I was like in between books and I, I didn't have any homework to do and no papers to grade. And I was like, fine, I'll read this book. And I couldn't put it down. When was this? Like a year ago. Okay. A year or two ago. I would have thought it that you had been... an older history with it. No, this is, my obsession with Murakami is fairly recent. I don't know. I want to talk about his, we've talked a lot about the story. What do you think about the writing? I liked the writing. Okay. I liked the writing. Yeah. I wanted to keep reading it. I It was very readable. Yes. I did not think, oh, this book is boring. I never thought that. Right. And you kept apologizing because it was so long. I mean, yes, it like took me time to read because it was long, but it was never like a drag. Right. I, yeah, I liked the writing. I just didn't like what he was writing. Right, exactly. <laughs> and that's, that's one of the things I also like about this book. To me, it's the opposite of like, the modernist stream of consciousness writers. Like, I was just listening to a podcast on Faulkner's As I Lay Dying, which I'll probably make you read at some point. Okay. But, like, it's basically a very basic plot. I mean, the mom of this family dies. The family tries to take her body to go bury it. And some things happen that complicate it. That's the plot. Like, that's all, the plot's very basic, but it's told in stream of consciousness through all these different characters' perspectives, including the dead mom in the coffin. And it's hard to read. Yeah. Because it's stream of conscious. But the plot is very simple. To me, Murakami is the opposite. The writing is very simple, but he's writing about these crazy ideas. Yes. And he, um, just this month, the December 2022 issue of the Atlantic Monthly, he has a piece and it's about the characters that he writes. And he wrote it. I just read it before we came here. And he talks about how good characters, they need to feel real, but also be unpredictable. Okay. Which I feel like also describes his writing style. Like, it's very real. He talks in the Paris Review um, interview around that came out around the time that Kafka did about how he likes to zoom in on really mundane things, yes, which I'm he sure does. you noticed. Yes, like, he does. I, listen, I could read this man's writing about food preparation all day long. <laughs> all day long. He does write about food preparation. <laughs> I don't know why. I, I love it so much. And it's really mundane, but his idea is that if I zoom in really closely, the closer I get, the weirder it is. I mean, yeah. Like when you say a word over and over. Yeah, that makes sense to me. And I think the closer you get, the more beautiful something is sometimes. One of the things I noticed was how he describes a chord in music, which is very difficult to do with words. How do you describe a chord with words? Mm -hmm. And there's only been one other time that I read a book that described a piece of music in a way that... Like, got you. Yeah. Because you're a musical person. Yeah. You know music. That is one thing. Before he became a writer, he owned a jazz club with his <laughs> wife called Peter Cat. Peter Cat? Yes. Which, um, like, isn't Pete the Cat like a kid's show right now? That's a children's book, yeah. Okay. But that came later. Okay. Um, so he loves jazz. It's in all his books. Yes, he talks about jazz. Well, I hate jazz. He talks about Because it's unpredictable nonsense. All That's why I hate jazz. If you get on his website, I don't know if you noticed, but all the most of the books have like a playlist. Oh my goodness. That, because they're pieces that are featured in the book. 
so yeah, he. I think you would probably enjoy if I could just snip all his like writing about music. Yeah, I think that we would not be friends though. He and I. He likes things that I don't like. Right. I don't like jazz because it's chaotic and unplanned, and it's just yeah, chaotic nonsense. But you like music. Yes, but I hate jazz. Right, and you like running. Yes, he loves running. He. I saw that he has written a book. A about, book. It's on our Christmas list. What I talk about. What I talk about. Yep. What I talk about. What I talk about running. Um. He also has, like, another memoir-ish book. I'm not really sure. It's called Murakami T. Like, like T-E-A-T? No, like, just the letter T, because it's oh. about all his T-shirts. What? <laughs> Each one has, like, I guess a picture. I don't know. I haven't seen the book. And like Talk about zooming in on something mundane. <laughs> like, some of them he's never worn. He has a of book them. of all my T-shirts? And they each have, like, little essays with them, I presume. I've not read oh, it. Oh, man, and I can't get published. <laughs> <laughs> Now, that's, like, one of his most recent books, so he's pretty big at this point. I don't know if he could have started with that. I'm pretty sure you cannot start with... <laughs> um, that's hilarious, though. Respect, yeah. Mad respect. Actually, like, his most recent book, I wasn't sure coming into this if you would love it or hate it. I think now you would hate it. Cool. Um, it's called Novelist as a Vocation, mm. and it is... Like every major, you know, Stephen King and Lamont, he has now written a book about writing. So that's his newest book. So do you want to know how he became a writer? Sure. This is so much fun. He was 29, running his jazz club, went to a baseball game. Baseball is very big in Japan, much yes. like KFC, apparently. <laughs> yes. Went, went to the baseball field, saw somebody hit a double, and an idea came to him, and he went home. To his kitchen that midnight and wrote his first, or what became his first book. And what? ever since then, he's been a writer. Should I go to more sports <laughs> I events? I don't know. <laughs> I said at the top, he's very mystical in the way he writes about writing. Like, I don't know. I don't even know what that's supposed to mean, which should make perfect sense because he wrote a book and I don't know what I, it's supposed to mean. He just, like, to him, it just came to him. He, so I love, I was reading this interview he did with the Paris Review, and I was just cracking up and reading so much of it to Brandon. I just kept saying over and over, like, forget everything I've said in the past. If somebody were to ask me, if you could have dinner with anyone, who would it be? I would pick (laughs) Haruki Murakami, because the things he says are off the wall and funny, and I don't know. Okay, so the interviewer asks, they've been interviewed for a while, and he asks, so these two factors, a straightforward, easy-to-follow narrative voice, so the writing, paired with an often bewildering plot. Mm -hmm. Is that a conscious choice? And he says, no, it's not. When I start to write, I don't have any plan at all. I just wait for the story to come. I don't choose what kind of story it is or what's going to happen. I just wait. Oh, my goodness. That's <laughs> and he says, but do you choose the voice that it's told in? That deadpan, easy-to-follow voice? Do you choose that? I get some images, and I connect one piece to another. That's the storyline. Then I explain the storyline to the reader. You should be very kind when you explain something. If you think, it's okay, I know that. It's a very arrogant thing. Easy words and good metaphors. Good allegory. So that's what I do. I explain very carefully and clearly. <laughs> do you? <laughs> In the voice. He's talking about oh, his, his he writing. He kept saying he explains Not, stuff. False. Um, False. And then the interview says, does this come naturally to you? And he says, I'm not intelligent. I'm not arrogant. I'm just like the people who read my books. I used to have a jazz club, and I made the cocktails, and I made the sandwiches. I didn't want to become a writer. It just happened. It's a kind of gift, you know, from the heavens. So I think I should be very humble. He sounds exactly like Nakata. I know! <laughs> Nakata isn't very smart. Um, and yeah, he talks about that first book he wrote when he was 29. He says, I started writing at the kitchen table after midnight. It took 10 months to finish that first book. I sent it to a publisher and I got some kind of prize. So it was like a dream. I was surprised to find it happening. But after a moment, I thought, yes, it's happened. And I'm a writer. Why not? It's that simple. I'm trying not to be so <laughs> mad. <laughs> I was like, oh, Stephanie's going to hate this. Oh, my gosh. So he's just, yeah. And I mean, if you read interviews with him, it's just full of stuff like that. He's just like, um, in the Atlantic piece I mentioned, he talked about creating his characters. And he does it through what he has dubbed the automatic dwarves. What does that mean? So he's real big on like, which I think this is cool. He's real big on observing. Like, he doesn't base his characters on anybody. He feels like his job is to observe and report and not judge his characters. He got some early criticism of, like, you don't have any negative characters in your stories. And he's like, oh, I guess I better start adding them. So he observed people that were hateful to him. Um, But he's like, I just 
pull from my cabinets in my head of like, I pull this and this trait and this quality and I put them together. And it's like the automatic dwarves. Because he says that for a while, he used to kind of think to himself when he, so he learned stick shift car and then went to automatic and it was so weird to him. He was like, it's like there's little automatic dwarves in my car finagling things and I'm just along for the ride. And he's like, that's how it feels when I write my character. I'm just pulling pieces, but I'm just doing what the automatic dwarves tell me to do. This person makes no sense to me. I'm so happy for you that you... (laughs) Yeah, he says, I know you'll laugh to hear me say this about the process of creating characters, but it's as if those automatic dwarves living in my unconscious are, despite a bit of grumbling, somehow managing to work hard. All I do is diligently copy it down. Oh, man. (laughs) He also... I just have to read this. This interviewer is like, oh, so are you friends with other writers? No, not at all. (laughs) You had no friends who were writers at that time? None. And over time, did you meet anyone who became a friend or a colleague? No, not at all. (laughs) To this day, you have no friends who are writers? No, I don't think so. (laughs) Is there no one you show your work to when it's in progress? Never. How about your wife? Well, I showed the first manuscript of my first novel, but she claims she never read it, so she got no impression at all, I guess. (laughs) And I was just like, this guy is crazy. So, yeah, I just find his process fascinating. I find him as a person fascinating. I find his writing style fascinating. Uh, I respect that and feel differently. That is, and that is okay. And I, I, uh, I figured that. John. Okay, so one-star Goodread reviews. We need, like, a sound cue for that. Yeah. <laughs> Vanessa says... Few books have infected me with boredom-induced ADD, the desire to gnaw my own foot off at the ankle, and the state of mind you might experience if forced to sit upon a nest of hornets while watching your home being burglarized. But this was one of them. (laughs) My hatred and resentment of this book progressively grew like a dead cow bloating in the heat. Whoa, that's a good simile. Okay. Kafka on the Shore is a mess. Loosely based on the Oedipus myth and taking some obvious inspiration from Capture in the Rye, this book seems to be little more than a random hodgepodge of ideas held together with pipe cleaners and raspberry jam. Raspberry jam. That's my favorite part. That's really good. <laughs> Rowan asked me the other day if pipe cleaners really cleaned pipes. <laughs> uh, what do you say to your three-year-old? Anyway. <laughs> I feel that if I'd wanted to find meaning in a random jumble of junk, I would have had more luck going to the thrift store and sifting through the bric-a-brac box than wasting time on Mr. Murakami's brain omelet. Brain omelet. Brain omelet is good. I really liked brain omelet omelet and held together with raspberry jam. So that's why I wanted to read Vanessa. I don't think those are, like, totally off base. No. I think I like brain omelets. Uh, Okay, well. Side of raspberry jam. Should we read Silence of the Lambs? Oh. Oh, no, I didn't realize how that sounded. I don't eat people. <laughs> oh, dear. Oh, this is not a fried green tomato situation. Okay. Um, John says, On the surface, Murakami's work seems profound, different, fresh, compelling, but when you dig a bit deeper, there's very little actual substance there. His characters are frequently flat and seem to make arbitrary, nonsensical decisions. His pacing is often too blown out because he needs to give himself such space to indulge in these episodes of wading into the odd imagery and scenarios he finds so fascinating. Further, and perhaps most egregious, at times he treats his fiction as if it's little more than an avenue from which to explore his fetishistic interests. For example, young girl's breasts or being masturbated by your sister. If you're hitting me with your kinks, you better be saying something important with them. Okay. Murakami only has his imagery and not much else. His books are a set of really nice windows and skylights sitting on a lawn with no house into which they might be installed. While they might have augmented a proper story enough to propel it into the realm of profundity, they have zero utility. Yeah, those are some great windows, but who needs just a window? Alone, they're useless. That's a fun metaphor. Kaf- it's a metaphor. Yeah. Life is a metaphor. I love it's metaphors. all a metaphor. Kafka on the Shore is a nonsensical story with vast pretensions of grandeur. Murakami gives us two empty vessels to follow, an angsty, horny teenager and a developmentally disabled old man. The real problem is that neither of these characters have any concrete conflict driving them forward, so we meander through the plot with them, never fully invested in their struggles, never fully caring about who they are. Murakami hits you with an incest fetish, some shocking depictions of violence against animals, and various bits of nonsense I find impossible to take seriously. Building a magic flute, oh my. (laughs) But without a concrete story to carry it along it all felt meaningless and silly 
I feel like that pretty well sums not nearly as angrily as yeah. John. Yeah, John's angry, which if he read through the whole book and didn't like it, I, I get that. Yeah, so not you nearly at least as, enjoyed it. Sure. I'm not he as bitter as John is, but I have those same feelings. Yeah. Uh, the thing he said about the characters, it's interesting. I feel like Kafka has a clearer conflict because he's trying to get away from this. Yeah. But I actually cared more about Nakata. Yeah. And I feel like from interviews and reviews that I've read, that is one character that's kind of risen to the surface of all of Murakami's work as being, like, one of his most beloved. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to dislike something about someone so innocent and sweet and just, like... Yeah. But his conflict is unclear. Like... Yeah. And, like, what is it about him that Hoshino, like, follows him blindly and tries to help him move this big world stone in a hotel room where there's a big slug? I don't know. Yeah. Anyway. Something about him. Well, cool. Well, thanks for reading it, friend. (laughs) Even though it was confusing. Thank you for assigning it to me. I did enjoy reading it. I... And I enjoyed talking about it. I really... You should try... So he wrote one realistic book. Okay. It's called Norwegian Wood. And he basically wrote it to, like, prove to himself that he could write a completely grounded and realism book. And was like, okay, I've done that. Now I don't have to do it again. <laughs> I I mean, I respect that. But I wonder... And I've not read it. It's on my I want to make list. sure he can write a plot for real. Yeah, you should you should check that out. And as will I... Oh, we could do a buddy read. <laughs> well, for next week, I want you to read I'll Be Gone in the Dark by Michelle McNamara. Yes. It's, I think it falls pretty far outside of your traditional realm of interest. Yes, true crime. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we'll talk about that one next week. Very excited to. Thank you for listening to You Might Hate This Book. Join us again next week for more discussion of the books we love. And the books we hate. You can help others find this podcast by leaving us a review and five-star rating. And don't forget to hit subscribe. You can offer additional support and earn cool perks by joining our Patreon at patreon.com slash hatethisbookpod. And thank you to our first patron, Acacia, who now gets a shout out on the podcast. Thank you, Acacia. We love you. Special thanks also to the Montague Workshop. See you next week. What I it's on my I want to make sure he can also on my Christmas list. Are we who are we? Where are, <laughs> where are we?